The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, Andy, actually, I'm going to be a little more ambitious, and I'm reaching for two chapters tonight in Exodus, uh, maybe Exodus 1 and 2. Do you think I'm going to make it? Who knows? We'll see. No, now listen. But uh, we'll get as far as we can, and that's, it's not really too important how far we get tonight, but rather that we rightly divide the word of truth and seek to live by it. We're looking at Exodus chapter 1 to begin with, and uh, if you would open your copy of Scripture, I'm going to read the whole chapter, and we'll start uh, there. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased, and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, Exodus 1, as we mentioned last time, begins right in the middle of the story. There's a continuity between Genesis and Exodus. In the Hebrew, as I mentioned last week, the first word of Exodus is the word and. And so immediately we're picking up the story from Genesis. And as I mentioned last time, the, the context for Exodus is the covenant that God had made to Abraham. Now, in, in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, 
when he called him to look up to the stars and see how many there would be, he said, so shall your offspring be. And so he promised that he would have numerous descendants, that there would be more than the stars of the sky. But he also promised him a land, didn't he? Go back to Genesis 15 and look again at this key passage. Because the history that we're about to embark on is prophesied very clearly in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, God's covenant to Abraham, verse 5, he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, in it, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That is the very verse that Paul picks up on and demonstrates as uh, saving faith. It's a hearing of the promise of God, and when you hear that promise, simply believing it, you have justification, you have forgiveness of sins, you have a righteousness credited to you, uh, which you don't deserve. It's apart from works, it's just a righteousness that comes by faith apart from observing the law. And so he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But then he also went beyond in verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And here we have the two portions of the Abrahamic covenant. We have a promise that his descendants, his seed, would multiply greater than the number of stars that Abraham could count. And he also promised him that to his seed or to his offspring he would give this land. Well, Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said, Bring a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, they he did not cut in half. Now then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Verse 12, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now here it is in verse 13. The Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And so here it is clearly prophesied that Abraham's descendants would be leaving the promised land, this physical area, and would go into a country not their own, into Egypt. And they would be there for a period of time, 400 years. Uh, but in the fourth generation, in verse 16, it says, I will bring your descendants back uh, to take possession of this land. And so God had a timetable for all of these things. Now here in this text, we have in, verse, in, in Genesis 15, we have the two reasons, I think, that we could uh, lift up and, and demonstrate for why God waited so long uh, with Israel in bondage. You know, God's ways are not our ways. And he is willing to put us through incredible suffering and incredible torment. All those hundreds of years of bondage and slavery. And we just read about it in Exodus chapter 1. Bitter and cruel labor. What was God doing and why was he waiting? Well, there's two different reasons. One of them had to do with his focus on Israel and what he was trying to do in Israel. And the second had to do with the Amorites. Concerning Israel, he wanted to give time for the Israelites to multiply greatly because they were just a really small number when they entered, uh, when they entered Egypt, just 70 in number, a small number. And they could never have have possessed that whole promised land. They were just much too small, and so there needed to be time for, for the multiplication of the people. 
also being in bondage and suffering and, and that whole experience of slavery tempered and shaped the soul of the nation in a way that could never have happened if they hadn't suffered through those things. You should note this. This is Psalm 119, verse 67. It's a very interesting verse. I hope you'll never need it, but maybe you will. Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. What do you think about that one, Herbert? Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. It shows the role sometimes of physical suffering and affliction in our sanctification. We sometimes have to get sick. We have to go through a, a period of perhaps financial uh, distress or the sickness or even death of loved ones. And this is a very difficult time, a time of testing. But it affects us in terms of our heart and in terms of our obedience. Before our, uh, obedience. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. And so we see one of the two poles of what God was trying to do in that long, extended period of time in Egypt. Number one, he is preparing Israel, giving them time to multiply, and also tempering their souls. Also, there's, there's a history now, isn't there? As a result of all those years of bondage, they were brought out of something, you see. There would be no context for all the mighty acts of God had there been no slavery and no bondage and no suffering. So against the black backdrop of the way that the Egyptians treated the Israelites, we have the glory of God's power. But then there's the Amorites, isn't there? And what does he say concerning the Amorites here in, in 1516? He says, you know, you're going to be there and I'll bring you out in the fourth generation. And why? Because as we mentioned last time, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This is a very potent concept, and it's something that Jesus repeats. You may not know this, but he repeats it in Matthew 23 in the passage on the uh, seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. But this time, he's not talking about the Egyptians. He's talking about the Jews. And he says, fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. That's what Jesus said to the Jews. He said, every single leader that has ever come, every prophet, every leader, you have persecuted and you have opposed. This is the measure. Fill it up then. And they would fill it up by killing him, the Son of God. But this is the same concept, that God has a certain amount, a certain measurement of wickedness and sin and perversion, and he waits until that measure is filled up. And you might say, how big is that measuring cup? Only God knows, for he sets that measure. And none of us can question the size of the measure because he doesn't owe us a, thing, a single thing. The wages of sin is death. And as soon as we sin, he doesn't owe us another day. He didn't owe it to us anyway, but how much more once we rebel and sin? Well, the sin of the Amorites hadn't reached its full measure, and God was incredibly patient with them, wasn't he? And so he cleared himself from any murmuring and any questioning about the sword of Joshua when for 400 years he waits for the Amorites to repent and to stop their their child sacrifice and their detestable worship practices and all the vile things they were doing. And they never did. But their hearts were darkened and hardened in sin. And so we see the two reasons he waited, to prepare the Israelites and to wait patiently for the Amorites to turn and to repent. Well, that is the history laid out ahead of time. How did it actually get fulfilled? Well, you know the story of Joseph, beginning in chapter 39 and up through the end of, of Genesis 50. Joseph was uh, Jacob's favorite son because he was the firstborn son of the wife that he wanted and not the one he didn't want. That's a whole other story for another day. But uh, he loved Joseph and gave him the coat of many colors, of course, identifying him as his heir. And so he would rule over his brothers in that regard and he would get uh, his, the inheritance. Well, the brothers hated him as a result and wanted to kill him, but in the sovereignty of God, he was delivered down into bondage in slavery in Egypt. 
Well, God orchestrated this entire thing so that he would uh, bring about the very thing he'd said to Abraham. You remember at the end, after, after Jacob had died, the brothers are very, very concerned about what Joseph is going to do now that he's the second most powerful man in Egypt. And they come trembling and say, you know, they, I think they lied at that point and said, Jacob said, do this and that. I, I think it was just a fabrication they made up. And he says, he's so grieved, Joseph is, and he says, listen, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God intended this whole thing to come about. But look at uh, chapter 46, if you will, and you'll see how God speaks directly to Jacob. And this is very important. Jacob went down to Egypt under the marching orders of God. He didn't show unbelief or faithlessness by leaving the promised land. You could say, now wait a minute, you should have stayed in the promised land, the very place that uh, God had told uh, Abraham that he would give to him. You, you should have stayed and it was unbelief for you to walk away and wander away. Not at all. Remember there was a famine, a severe famine at the time. There was no food in the promised land. That's why the brothers went down to Egypt to begin with. But in chapter 46, by this time the word has gotten out that Jacob, uh, sorry, that Joseph is in power in Egypt. He's alive. Oh, what a shock that must have been for Jacob, by the way. All of those years all of those years thinking his beloved son was dead. All of those years. And he never got over it. You know, it was a bleeding wound. There are some things that happen in life and you never forget. And in one sense, you never get over it. And it just pained him every day. And he would cry out to God about the pain of his son uh, Joseph's death. But look what he says. He's hesitating to go down to Egypt. He's not sure whether he should go. And God speaks to him. Now look what he, he says in, in 46, beginning at verse 2. And God spoke to Israel, that's Jacob, in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. The, he said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And listen to this and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Joseph will be by your bedside when you die. The very one you've been waiting for all this time. So don't be afraid and go down. This is all from my hand. And so Joseph is in power in Egypt. He's set aside grain, seven years of grain, so that they might survive. And so they go down as a result. Now, parenthetically, this has nothing to do with Exodus, but I thought much about this verse, 46.4. Do you ever wonder about it spiritually? How many times do you think Jacob cried out to God concerning his dead son? Think about that now. How many years did he say, God, I'm hurt, I'm hurt. Why did this have to happen? He's questioning, he's wondering. All of those years. And what could God have done to alleviate his suffering? As simple as speak to his heart the way he does right here. Joseph's alive. You're grieving for nothing. Why didn't he do it? It would have ruined everything. What would Jacob have done? He would have gone down too early before the time was right. All the fruit has to ripen. And when God says harvest time is, then that's when the harvest time is. He's willing to put Jacob through unbelievable psychological suffering to accomplish his end. He could easily have told him, Joseph's alive, you're crying for nothing. But he let him cry. And he let him cry and cry and cry until finally 46-4, the time is right. By the way, Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Now you tell me, after all these years, finally I know. Well, this is the sovereignty of God. And it could be that you came tonight with some kind of grief or burden or suffering. And you don't understand why God has done this or that. In some regards, you may never understand. But realize this, that there is a sovereign God who overrules all things. 
for his glory and his plan is good. And his plan includes you if you're a child of God. And he may never fully explain it all. But he is willing to put you through incredible physical and emotional, psychological suffering to accomplish his ends. But his ends are glorious. His ends are glorious. What kind of story would it have been if three years later, <clears throat> while he was still in Potiphar's house, Jacob had showed up and took him home? No exodus, none of these things would have happened. It wasn't God's way. And so he decreed suffering for Jacob and then eventually decreed suffering for all of Israel. A.W. Pink brings up another suggestion concerning the delay, and that is that Joseph's brothers needed to be punished to the fourth generation for what they did. Now, I'm not quite sure whether that's true or not, but we do know that it was the fourth generation that came out from Egypt. Now we've set the table. Let's look more specifically at Exodus. In chapter 1, it gives us the list, verse uh, 1 through 5, of those that went down to Egypt. We've already mentioned them. Their names are listed there. These are the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes, leaders, tribal leaders <clears throat> of um, Israel. By the way, I've done a little bit of research on the four generations. and Some people say, how in the world can you equate four generations to 400 years? But that's about what it was like back then. I mean, how old was Jacob when he died? He was 137. Moses was 120. This was common. And if you want to look it up, take an, uh, and note 1 Chronicles 6, 1 through 3, where it lists the sons of Levi. And it goes like this. Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Kohath were Amram. Do you know who Amram was? Moses' father. Okay, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the children of Amram were Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. That's four generations, folks. It's absolutely accurate. Now, of course, they lived longer than we did, but it was four generations. So in the fourth generation, they would come. And so we, here we have the first generation. These are all the 12 patriarchs that go down uh, to Egypt. Now, verse 6, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites, verse 7, were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. This patterns in the, in the Hebrew the uh, original uh, command that God gave to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same three verbs are in there. And so there's definitely a connection. This is somewhat the genesis or the creation of Israel as they are multiplying and they are fulfilling the very promise that God had made to um, Abraham, they estimate, you know, there are 600,000 plus men of fighting age that came out. That's the uh, census in the time of Exodus. So you're dealing with probably 2 million people, at least, uh, that came out. So that's unbelievable. I don't know if you'd have the patience out under a clear night sky to count stars up to 2 million. But uh, God's word to Abraham was most certainly fulfilled. Huge number of Israelites came out. And so they multiplied exceedingly greatly. And then it says in verse 8, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Now, we know a great deal about ancient Egypt. Uh, there's just something about their record keeping, their uh, fascination with the dead, their tombs, and the dry climate that makes papyrus that they write on just last forever, it seems. And so we have a great deal of, of information about the various dynasties that ruled over Egypt. Now, it's not very easy, I think, to line up the Exodus with a specific archaeologically developed dynasty. But there is a theory that the, the 17th, sorry, the 18th dynasty were the Hyksos people who were actually not Egyptians. They were uh, Semites. And they, had, they ruled over Egypt during a period of Egypt's weakness. And it would make sense then that a pharaoh of that dynasty would welcome in another Semite like Joseph and give him a position of authority and power. 
But the 18th dynasty was pure Egyptian, and there was a backlash at that point against these foreigners, of whom the uh, Israelites, the Hebrews, would have been seen to be uh, foreigners, Semites. And so there is some lining up at this point with the harsh treatment uh, that uh, the Israelites received. When it says another king who knew nothing about Joseph, uh, in, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, when Stephen recounts this, he uses the word uh, heteros, or a different king of an entirely different nature. Completely different king came, so probably even of a different race. Probably he was Egyptian. This is speculation, but at least this much is clear. This new dynasty has no interest in coddling the Jews. No interest at all, and they have no memory whatsoever of what Joseph did or of his ability to foretell the future with dreams or of any kind of famine. That was all, as far as they were concerned, ancient history, if they even knew it at all. And so they dealt treacherously, it says, with the Israelites. It says, the people have become too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them, verse 10, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. Now, it's interesting that they're worried about two things. They're worried about kind of a fifth column that could double back on them during a time of conflict and start fighting from within. Their rear guard would be attacked. They're concerned about that. But they're also concerned that they will leave the country. Well, why are they concerned that they'll leave the country? Because it seems already the economy has taken them in and is dependent on their labor. And so if they leave the country, things will collapse. And so they're concerned that they will leave the country. And so it gets even more severe at this point. They put slave masters over them in verse 11 to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Now, the concept of forced labor is common in the ancient world. All of those ancient wonders were built, no question about it, with slave forced labor. Even the Israelites used it. You remember how Solomon, how all these great building projects, and then when Rehoboam came along, they said, could you ease up a little bit? You know, could you, could you back off on the forced labor and, and the overseers and all that? And Rehoboam gave a very sassy and prideful answer and said, hey, you haven't seen nothing yet. You know, my, fa my little fingers as big as my father's waist. So uh, he sent out even worse slave laborers and they killed them. <laughs> so they would not accept this at all. But this is, this is the way that these storehouses, these cities were built. The pyramids and all that with terrible... The, the last of the whip, slave labor. And so they put the Jews to slave labor and they built these store cities for Pharaoh. But uh, verse 12 shows just the sovereignty of God. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so in Genesis, uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 1, we have three uh, attempts that the uh, Egyptians have to destroy the Jews. The first is bitter slave labor. They think that by making their lives bitter and harsh, they'll wipe them out or at least keep them manageable population-wise. But it didn't work, because in Isaiah 46.10 it says, What I have purposed, that I will bring about. What I have counseled, that I will do. My purpose will stand. And so you think that you're going to destroy my people. No matter what you do, they're going to get more and more powerful. They will multiply more and more. And so uh, this effort did not succeed at all. The slave uh, labor did not cause them to decrease, but they actually multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them even more ruthlessly. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and in their hard labor the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The Hebrew is very harsh. There's a sense of, of, of uh, absolute hopeless existence 
Every day you woke up and went out there and dragged huge stones or made bricks or, or, or all kinds of field labor, whatever it would be. It was a horrible and a difficult existence. Well, now we get into phase two. The hard labor didn't work, and so now they're going to try what I would call at this point localized genocide. They're working specifically through these two midwives. Now, their names are Hebrew, and so they probably were themselves Hebrew women, although it's possible that they were Egyptian, but uh, I think more likely that they were Hebrew. Now, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Now, this is a, this is a very significant moment here in redemptive history. Just in your mind, go back to Genesis 3, verse 15. There God is punishing the serpent. And he's really giving judgment on Satan, isn't he? And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his head or you will bite his heel and he will crush your head. And so this uh, basically what's happening is that there had been a union of sorts between the woman, between the human race basically, and Satan, the demonic race. And God divides that and says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. Well, who is the seed of the woman? Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ. And Satan himself knew that. And so we get a recurring theme in history of an attempt at genocide to kill the boy babies. Go over, if you would, in your Bible to Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 12, we get the spiritual side of the history that we're reading here. Revelation 12, verse 1 through 5, it says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars in her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten crowns and seven crowns on his heads. Now, if you look at that, you can see the sense of government here. This is definitely Satan. But Satan is coming in the guise, I think, of human government. And he uses the governing powers to carry out his malicious and his vicious will here. And what is his will? Well, first of all, we get the insight concerning his rebellion. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Uh, I think in the apocalyptic language, this is speaking of his demons. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. I really think this goes back to the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush his head. And so he's trying to devour that boy child before or as soon as it's born. <clears throat> Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Who is this? Well, it's none other than Jesus Christ. And so Jesus would be Jewish. Salvation is from the Jews, he says in John 4. And so here at the beginning or the genesis of the Jewish nation, it's not insignificant at all that we get this genocide directed right at the boy babies. Now, you could say that the Egyptians didn't know anything about that prophecy back in the garden. doesn't matter. Satan knew it. And he was trying to destroy God's purposes and his plans right here from the start. 
And so uh, her child was snatched up to God and to his throne, and it goes on from there. And someday we may study the book of Revelation when I get it figured out. But anyway, specifically, <clears throat> that is prophesying this attack. Do we see this again in redemptive history? This genocide directed at boy babies. Well, of course we do. We, we see it in Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus is born. And this time again, it's human government, but it's a Jewish king, King Herod, who is threatened by the prophecy through the Magi that the king of the Jews has been born. And so he orders that all the boy babies in Bethlehem and its vicinity who are two years old and under. I'm thinking about my little boy, Calvin, the little sweet baby boy, two years old and under, brutally murdered to protect this man's throne. A vicious attack. And so this is a recurring theme, the attack of the devil on these boy babies. You see it again in Israel's history as certain kings uh, are attacked by someone else who tries to usurp their throne. There's one baby in particular that's held behind a curtain when all of his brothers are killed. He's the only one left of David's line, but he is not going to be killed. There's no way that sovereignty will allow that baby to die. And so we see the attack of the devil. Another thing that's interesting is this birth stool. In Exodus chapter 1, it says, when you observe the Hebrew women on the birth stool, basically it was two bricks that she would stand on, and the baby, there was a sense of gravity helping the birth, and the baby would be born. But I think it's very significant that the baby is born between two bricks, because that really represents the kind of life he could expect. He's born into a life of bondage, a hard and brutal life, surrounded by slave labor, basically. A life of bondage, symbolized, I think, by those bricks. And so there uh, they are. Now, for you ladies that have been through the birth process, you can give thanks to God that it's different now. Uh, there was no concern here for comfort. I don't know if the babies ever dropped on the floor or what it was, but uh, they're so careful now with the babies, and well, they should. But uh, the, uh, the harshness of this is so clear. The midwives, verse 17, however, did not, they feared God and did not obey the king of Egypt. And here again we have ethically the clear uh, example that a command from God and God's rules and God's regulations take priority over any human regulation. It is possible to disobey a king when the king is disobeying God. And so they feared God and they did not obey. Usually you fear God and do obey. And that's the usual pattern, and so it should be. But in this case, there's a clear disconnect. They feared God and did not obey this genocidal order. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Uh, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. Now, I think this comes a little bit better from a Hebrew woman saying it. You know, There's almost a little measure of dignity still left. You know, they don't have the cushy life you folks have. They're probably back out in the fields later on that same day. Okay, they're vigorous and they're tough. And they give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, it's interesting that the account doesn't say whether these ladies are lying or not. Could be they were just telling part of the truth, that they observed this once or twice or maybe even a number of times. Uh, but either way, no matter what they said to Pharaoh, they were not going to obey this wicked order. And so it says, as a result of their faithfulness, God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. In verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Now, isn't it amazing? You know, this is what God says is a valuable reward, that you get children of your own. 
In many cases, in many societies in the ancient Near, Near Eastern world, the midwives were barren women. Okay? They didn't have their own children to care for, and so they could go around and take care of other people's babies. And so God blessed them and gave them families. You know, Americans don't think rightly about children. We don't think of them the way we should, as a blessing. But this is a reward from God because they feared God and took their lives into their hands. God gave them babies. He gave them children of their own. Well, then we get to part three. First, we've had the bitter hard labor, the slave labor. That didn't work. Then we have what you could call, I think, a localized genocide where he's just working through these two Hebrew midwives. But now we have a nationwide genocide. Anybody, everybody... Any Egyptian can take any Hebrew boy baby and throw him in the Nile. Verse 22. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. This is a vicious attack. And so uh, the attempt that Satan was making to destroy the Jews came about. Now I think that there's something significant here too. You remember the ten plagues that uh, God afflicted the Jews with, all right, afflicted Egypt with. The final, the most vicious and the most, uh, the most powerful plague was the tenth plague. And what was it? It was a plague on the firstborn. And to some degree, it was out of their own mouths that this plague came. The justice of God is so perfect. God, through his sovereignty, uh, brings back on their own heads what they have said that they would do to his people. Anyone who digs a pit, they'll fall into it. Anyone who rolls a stone, it'll roll back on him. When you're attacking God's people, he does not take it lightly. And so Exodus 1. Now in Exodus chapter 2, I propose that we just read through the first section of the chapter, the birth of Moses. And at this point, we see the stage is set <clears throat> for the deliverer to come. And what's so fascinating is the deliverer, Moses, is just a, a baby. He's just a, a Jewish baby. And he's going to take on this, this cosmodemonic megapower, Pharaoh. He's going to take him on, and not only is he going to take him on, he's going to win. Because God has ordained it, and God's power is with him. As he will say in, in the next chapter, chapter 3, I will be with you. It isn't you, but God raises up this little baby out of the Nile, and he uses him to conquer, to some degree, the Egyptians. Look at chapter 2. Now, a man of the Levites uh, married a Levite woman. A man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw him, that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. <clears throat> when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now this is the beginning of the life of Moses, <clears throat> the towering figure of the Old Covenant. He is the great leader of Israel. And we're going to see incredible things, but it's a very humble beginning, isn't it? He's a child under a decree of death. He's born, it seems, to die. 
It seems that there's no future for him because he's a Hebrew boy baby. And yet God has ordained great things for him and what God purposes will stand. Now I'm going to make a few comments. We'll stop here and then begin next time. But a few comments. Number one, it's fascinating to me how God ministers to the needs of his people. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, it says in Psalm 37. And so this woman, Jochebel, I think her name is, gives birth to this baby and she loves this baby. He's beautiful to look at and there's a sense of the presence of God there and, and, and she doesn't want to give up the baby. And by the end of our little account that we've read here, verse 11, she has her son back and she's nursing him and caring for him and raising him in her own house and getting paid to do it. Now, isn't that marvelous, the sovereignty of God to accomplish his ends? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.